Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we bow before you again with thankful hearts, knowing that if we are in Christ, then all is well with our soul. We pray for those, Father, who sit here today who are not in Christ. We pray that today would be the day of salvation as the gospel is proclaimed and we seek to understand how you save us by grace. We pray, Father, that your Spirit would open up eyes to see their sinfulness and their need of Christ. We thank you, Father, that throughout our country today we celebrate sanctity of human life. We thank you for the law that was passed that has spared thousands of babies from death. Even here in Mississippi, it is stated that some 5,000 have been spared each year because of this new law. And we give you all the praise. But Father, we are not satisfied, for we know that many states continue to allow the unborn to be murdered in the womb. And we will not be satisfied until every single baby has the opportunity to live outside the womb. But Father, we know that hearts must be changed. So we pray that you would bring about an awakening in our day so that people will understand that you are the one that creates the unborn, that you are the one that places in the womb, and that you hold those guilty who take the life of the unborn, the most innocent of all human beings. Cause us to continue to speak forth the truth to call people to repentance. For we know even here in our state of Mississippi that there are those that continue to seek to get an abortion. Father, we pray that this evil would be rid of in our nation and that these babies would live. Cause us, Father, to be faithful to pray for the end of all abortion. We pray, Father, also for those who are unable to be with us. You know their reasons and needs. We know that there are those that continue to need your healing hand upon their body. Pray that you'd be pleased to restore their health so that they might join us for worship soon. Pray for those who would be away, that you would give them safety and watch over them and bring them back to us soon. We pray also for those who would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual needs and that you would bring conviction into their hearts so that they might join us again for worship. Pray for our sister churches throughout the world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed this day, that many would be brought into your kingdom for your honor and glory. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3 and we will read verses 21 through 26 as we continue to look at the subject of grace. Romans chapter 3 beginning with verse 21. And now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnesses by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be justified, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is one of the most glorious passages in the gospel. It gives us a clear understanding of grace and God's salvation through grace. Now earlier, Paul has made it very clear in chapter 3 that there is no one righteous, no, not one, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he clearly presents to us that every single human being is a sinner in need of grace. And he goes into great detail to talk about how sinful man is, just as the prophet Isaiah did in chapter 17, verse 9, when he said, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked who can know it. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ elaborates on what Jeremiah says in Mark 7, beginning in verse 20, when he said, What cometh out of a man that defiles him? For within him, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murder, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lulus, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So the Bible is very clear and it leaves us no doubt as far as the depravity of man. Every single human being is in a lost condition. We dealt with that yesterday in our men's Bible study and talking about how fathers must recognize that to be able to deal with their children. Now, if you were not here, I can't encourage you enough to be here the next time as we continue that subject. I can't force men to come, but I can sure encourage you, and I hope you do. We need to gather together as men and to discuss these things and be able to share with one another so we can encourage each other in our spiritual walk, especially in raising our children. But we emphasize how our children are depraved and how you must deal with the heart. And as Vody Balcom talks about in his book that we are studying, he recommends a wonderful book that I've often recommended to you, Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. And I encourage you, if you do not have a copy of that, Pick up a copy of that. I believe we still have copies in the book room. But it's dealing with the heart. And that's what Paul is also dealing with. That we must deal with the heart of an individual, whether it's a young heart or an old heart. God's law condemns all men. Paul says in verse 20 of this chapter, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
So God has given us the law to expose to us that we are sinful human beings, that we cannot keep the law in and of ourselves. Now before Paul lays out how we are justified, he clearly wants to tell us how bad we are so that we might understand that left to ourselves, we can do absolutely nothing in our lost condition to save ourselves. So he points out that no one is justified by keeping the law. We cannot keep the law to be justified. And we must give the bad news to those who we speak to who are in a lost condition before sharing the good news with them. I've often said that. A person must see his lost condition. Until he sees his lost condition, he cannot receive the gospel. He will not hear the gospel. He will not understand the gospel. He must understand first and foremost that he is a lost human being in need of God's grace. Now this doctrine... And it reminds me when I always say that word doctrine of that lady that many, many years ago, it's over 40 years ago, when she said when we were looking for a pastor, we need a pastor that just teaches us truth. Let's not worry about doctrine. But doctrine is truth. It's what you teach. So children, especially you, understand when I say the word doctrine, it's what you believe. And we are looking at the most controversial doctrine in history today. It is called justification by faith alone. And it's the main cause of the Reformation in the 16th century. Now, the question that Martin Luther, and children, you know who he is, because when we have Reformation Day, some of you dress up like Martin Luther, and we'll read a certain portion from something that he has written. He was a great theologian, and he asked a question, How can an unjust person, a sinner, ever hope to stand before a holy God, the just judge of all creation, and not be consumed due to His sinfulness? God's a holy God. And a sinful man coming before a holy God would be... uh, destroyed instantly if he came before God in his own righteousness, which is unrighteousness with his filthy rags. So how in the world can we come before a holy God? Children, let me simplify the question. How are the unjust justified? Simplified even more. How are we saved from our sins? Now, there's no more important question than this question for us to answer. Because it speaks of our eternal consequences. Sad to say that many within the church today cannot even define justification. Now, let me make sure that this is not a case with you. What is justification? Now, I know that's question number 35, and I think y'all are, what, up to 12 on creation, somewhere around there. So it's probably going to be a couple of more years before we get to justification in our Sunday school time. But it's very important that we know the answer to this catechism. What is justification? So 
I want you to write it down. Now, I know you can pull it up on your phone and have it, but if you write it down, it helps you to memorize it. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace in which He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ impute it to us and receive by grace alone. Let me repeat it one more time. Justification is an act of God's free grace in which He pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now children, yours is a little bit easier. The reason I gave that one first, I wanted everyone to write it down. I kept asking my wife on the way to church this morning, what is justification? And guess what she kept answering? She kept giving me the children's answer because she knows it by heart since she catechized all of our children. It is God regarding sinners as if they have never sinned. Now I like that one because that's pretty short, but we need to know the longer one, adults. But children, will let you learn that short one. The answer is, it is God regard, regarding sinners as if they have never sinned. Now that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That God would regard you and that God would regard me as if we have never sinned. Now, really and truly, we can't comprehend that. Because we know that we have sinned from the day that we were born. We have always sinned. And we can't imagine God looking upon us as though we've never sinned. But that's what the Scripture teaches us, and that's what we want to look at today. Most people today believe that they can be right with God based on what? What they do. Based on, they think, their good works. Now, Martin Luther warned the church that if this doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone wasn't taught consistently, what would happen? That this doctrine would no longer be held to. Well, guess what? This doctrine was not taught consistently. And this doctrine is not held by the majority of the churches today. Which means what? Well, that means then they're not a true church. Now, that's not based on only what I said, but that's based on some great theologian and Martin Luther being one of them. He stated that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is foundational and determines whether or not the church stands or falls. Now, listen to what he says. This doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, Builds, preserves, defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. And I agree with him. If you do not believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, then you don't believe in God's way of salvation. And any church that does not believe this doctrine, as Martin Luther says, is not a church. He goes on and says, 
The doctrine of justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, the judge of all kinds of doctrines. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscience before God. Without this doctrine, the world is utter death and darkness. Do you see how important this doctrine is? It is the doctrine of doctrines. It is the foundation of all doctrines. If the church doesn't get this right, then it ceases to be the true church of Jesus Christ. If he is right, and I believe that Martin Luther is right, then there are a lot of groups that are meeting today in buildings who call themselves churches who are not churches. Why? Because they don't teach and they don't believe the doctrine of justification by faith alone. If a church denies this doctrine, it has no right to call itself a Christian church. Now, I know that may sound hard, but that is true. And some truth is very difficult to accept. Some truth is very hard. I mean, if you go to the doctor and the doctor examines you and he discovers that you have cancer, and you don't like that he discovered that you have cancer, and you say, well, doctor, I don't like that. And he looks at you and says, well, what do you want me to do about it? I can't help that you don't like it. I'm just telling you the truth. And it's the same way with this. I can't help it that some people say, well, how can you call us not a church? I said, well, because you don't believe the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And they said, well, I don't like that. I said, well, I can't help that you don't like it. I'm just telling you the truth. Now, John Calvin had a similar view concerning the importance of this doctrine. He said, Justification by faith alone is the hinge upon which everything in the Christian life turns. Do you see the foundation of that as well? The hinge. Everybody knows what a hinge is. And that hinge causes the door to turn. And he's saying everything, everything in the Christian life Everything in the Christian life is based on this particular doctrine. He said, or uh, Luther said, There are few of us who know and understand this article. I treat it again and again because I greatly fear that after we have laid our heads to rest, it will soon be forgotten and will again disappear and indeed, we cannot grasp or exalt Christ, the eternal righteousness, with one sermon or thought. For to learn to appreciate Him in an everlasting lesson, which we shall not be able to finish either in this or the life beyond. So he's saying one sermon on the doctrine of justification doesn't get it. He says, I return to it again and again. And it must be returned to again and again from the pulpit so that it sinks deep into our very soul. And this is one reason why 
I continue to preach on grace. We've looked at two sermons already on understanding grace, and we will continue to look at understanding grace today in the light of this particular doctrine of justification by faith alone. This doctrine must be understood with the mind. Now don't say, I'm not a theologian. I can't understand doctrine. No, remember what I said. Doctrine is what you believe. You believe something. And I hope you believe what the Bible is teaching us on this particular truth of justification. So I encourage you to use your mind. God's given you a mind. I'm not going to seek to dumb you down. I want to bring you up. I want to give you all the information that you can hold in that brain of yours so that you might understand this glorious doctrine that God has given us in His Scripture through His Apostle Paul. So therefore, I'm encouraging you to listen, to think, to grasp it, to pray that God will give you understanding in the head and that understanding in the head will go into the heart. That's why it's so important to catechize your kids, your children. You're putting it in their head. If you're not putting it in your head, where are they going to receive? They're going to receive all the worldly things, but if they're not receiving the spiritual things, if you're not teaching them the catechisms and and instructing them in the way of God, as we talked about again yesterday, how important it is that we teach our children how God saves them. And here it is, again, justification, so that they might understand how God saves them, so that when God saves them, they understand that God has saved them. I was sharing with him yesterday in our men's study that I, w- I was miserable for 11 years not understanding if God had saved me or not. And when I began to understand these doctrines and understanding how God has saved me and when God has saved me, it gave me such peace. And I don't want anyone in our church, children and young adults or older adults, to go through what I went through. When you have doubts and questions. No, if you understand these things and begin to receive these things, then you understand the work of God and His Spirit in your life. Now, of course, it is one thing to understand a doctrine, but another thing to allow that doctrine to govern your life, to be a governing principle of our faith so that we deny ourselves daily and live for Christ daily. What we believe must lead to to that. Doctrine must not be cold. Doctrine must be alive in your life. So let us look closer at this doctrine of justification by faith alone. We'll look at it today and continue next week. If we don't finish next week, we'll continue after that. First, what is the fundamental question that this doctrine answers? Why have I emphasized it? Why is it so important? Because it answers this basic question, this most important question. How can a sinful, unjust person stand before a holy, just God in the final judgment and not be sent to hell immediately? King David, with anguish and despair, answered a question in Psalms 33. O Lord, if Thou should mark iniquity, record iniquity, 
who could stand? Do you hear what David's asking? If God, thou should mark iniquity, if you recorded all my iniquity, who could stand? Let's, let's say that you commit only 10 sins a day. Now, the reason why I say 10 is because it's an easy number to keep up with pertaining to the years. We commit a lot more than 10 sins a day. But let's just say you only committed 10 sins a day. Well, how many sins is that a year, children? I know y'all are quick and y'all's adding up in your head and you're coming up with it really quick and you have what? 3,650 sins. That's a lot of sins for just one year. Now, the average age of a person that is living right now in the United States is 77. So let's say 77 times that 3,650. Well, by the time you die, if you only committed 10 a day, you're up to 271,050. Now, Mr. Jimmy's out today, but if Mr. Jimmy was here, I'd say, Mr. Jimmy, you know how many sins you've committed if you only committed 10 at your age of 93? It'd be 339,450. Now, my neighbor, Miss Frazier, who's 100 years old, hers would be up, of course, you can quickly say 100 times that, and you're up to 306,050. So that's a lot of sins, right? And David asked a question, and the rhetorical question. He knew the answer. He was experiencing something that we all need to experience. Our conscience needs to be alarmed to the presence of sin in our life. And as he thinks about his life and he thinks about his sin, he realized, who can stand before you, God, with all of these sins, if you keep a record, if you, if you track my daily activity and all my sins and you hold me accountable for every single sin that I've committed and you judge me accordingly, who can stand? I cannot stand, he's saying. I'm doomed because of all these sins. So the answer is obvious. No one can stand before God in their sin. And this what makes the doctrine of justification by faith alone so glorious. Jonathan Edwards said, The greater the guilt of any sinner is, the more glorious and wonderful is the grace manifested in His pardon. It is the honor of Christ to save the greatest sinner. Do you hear what he's saying? When you realize just how many sins you committed, if, if it's that, which is over that, let's, let's jump it on up, millions of sins. When you realize you've got millions of sins and you've been forgiven for all of those sins, as he says, more glorious and wonderful is the grace manifested in His pardoning of those sins. So we see this truth throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, when sinners were confronted with Christ and His holiness, what did they do? 
Well, we see Peter, when Jesus had asked them, have you caught any fish? And they said, we've labored all night. He said, throw your nets on the other side. And they threw and they hauled in. This, they did this more than once. They hauled in all those fish. And Peter fell down, it says, before Jesus. And he cried out, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, he realized that he was standing in front of other, other holiness. He realized he was standing in front of someone that was not like him. And when he realized that, he couldn't do anything but say, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And that's the natural response when our eyes are open to just how sinful we are. Remember Isaiah there in Isaiah 6? I mean, this is the prophet of God. He was a holy man. But of course, he was a sinful man, even though he was a holy man of God. And he says there, Woe is me, I'm coming apart. I'm, I'm undone, coming apart at the seams. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. David himself, when he was confronted by Nathan, he said, I have sinned against the Lord there in 2 Samuel 12, 13. And then there in Psalms 51, 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, O Lord. See, when our eyes are open to our sinfulness, only one thing that we can do, we cry out to God for mercy. For we know what we deserve. We know that God would be just and righteous to send us to an everlasting hell. So therefore we cry out for mercy. Charles Spurgeon gives an illustration pertaining to God's mercy to great sinners. He says, imagine a prisoner at Old Bailey, and that was a prison there, pleading with the judge that he, if he would kindly let him off because he was such a great offender. I'm such a great sinner, he's saying, let me off. I mean, that, that to us seems ridiculous, right? Because he's such a great offender, I should be set free. We would think that it would be very legitimate reason why he would not receive pardon, right? The more sins you commit, the more you ought to spend time in prison, is what he's pointing out to. But that's not how God works. God is gracious and merciful. And our passage teaches us that God is both just and the justifier of sinful people. His religion, and when I say His religion, I left out a point there. I was, I was talking recently to a Muslim and talking to him about Christianity versus his Islam. And he was um, talking about how they are able to get to paradise. And the part that he couldn't grasp was the forgiveness of sin. Now they're out there to ask for forgiveness of sin. But what happens to their sin? You're to repent and ask for forgiveness of your sin from Allah. But where, why are you going to receive it? What's happened to the sin? Where did the sin go? See, that's the question they can't answer. 
because they don't have an answer for that. There's no atonement for their sin. See, only Christianity offers true forgiveness because only Christianity deals with the atonement, the substitutionary atonement, which is all based on God's grace. So therefore, his religion has no way for sin to be forgiven. Sin must be forgiven. Sin must be paid for. Even though they must repent and show genuine remorse and and they must pray to Allah for mercy and forgiveness and avoid sin even in the future, sin hasn't been paid for. It must be paid for. Now second, what it means for God to be just and the justifier. And it's so important to understand this biblical concept that Paul is presenting to us so that we understand the gospel of grace. The gospel doesn't teach that God simply declares forgiveness unilaterally to everybody. We are not universalists. That's what universalists believe. They believe that everyone will be forgiven and everyone will go to heaven. Here's their logic. God loves everyone and desires all to be saved. Now, have you heard that before? I've heard that in a lot of Baptist churches, that God loves everyone and desires for everyone to be saved. Nothing can suppress the love or will of God. Therefore, all will be saved is what the universalist says. Now, one of their main scriptures that they use is 1 Corinthians 5, 19. God in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their transgressions to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So their rationale is that since Christ is reconciling the world, which they say that is everyone, to Himself, and that God is not imputing their transgressions, their sins to them, but has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So therefore, if their sin is not imputed to them, then they are not held guilty, then they believe that everyone then goes to heaven. Now certainly, the doctrine of justification includes the doctrine of divine mercy and the remission of sins. But we know that this is only for those who are in Christ. If they're not in Christ, they do not receive these graces of God. Unless their heart is changed. Only those who have grace implanted in their heart by the Holy Spirit truly repent and trust in Christ. We've already looked at that. We looked at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, and what? And this not of yourself, a gift of God. What's the gift of God? The grace is a gift of God. The faith is a gift of God so that you might believe and you might repent. So the gospel sets before us a God who is a forgiving God, a gracious God, a God that is seeking out sinners by His grace to save them from their sins. But God being a forgiving God does not mean that He takes sin lightly. Nor does He compromise His holy character or His justice. Now the point is that when God 
in His mercy, offers forgiveness to a guilty sinner in His complete progress of divine forgiveness, it doesn't mean that God simply winks at sin. We know that He doesn't wink at sin. Why? Because of the cross. Sin was paid for. There, His only begotten Son hung on the cross and paid the price by taking our punishment upon Himself. He paid for every single sin. All of those sins. Now, now a while ago when we was talking about how many sins we commit, and I said, well, let's just round it off to a couple of million, which is probably more than that, but I'm just saying let's round it off. That. That's just one person. Just one Christian. There's literally millions of Christians. And Christ took all of those sins upon Himself at the cross. So God does not take sin lightly. No sin is paid for by Christ. And God's way of justifying guilty people was worked out from all eternity. They're in that eternal council between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Our salvation was decided in a way that God Himself remains just and holy and righteous, and at the same time is able to save sinners. And this is why Paul calls God just and the justifier. Look again at verse 26, the second part. He says that He, of course God, might be just and the justifier, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if God is just, and I'm not just, and I have to face His judgment, how can I possibly stand before Him? Of course, my greatest need for all eternity is what? To be justified. And the Bible says that God is both just and a justifier. So He's the one that has to justify me. He's the one that has to work His justification in me. And does it without compromising His justice. Now that's a crucial point that we have to understand. It is God who does the justifying. We cannot justify ourselves. Why can we not justify ourselves, children? Because we're sinners. And a sinner cannot justify himself. So therefore, we have to have another to justify us. I cannot justify myself, nor anyone else can justify me. It's only God and God alone that can justify me. And he pronounces the final verdict of a person's justification or the lack of their justification. Which leads us to our third point. It is a legal declaration. Now this is called forensic justification by the reformers in the 16th century. We We don't use the word in church much as far as forensic. It's, it's not often used in church. Where is it often used? It's used in the court, court of law. In criminal cases, you hear about forensic science, 
forensic pathology, forensic evidence. It's, it's a method of science used to figure out the crime. Now the term forensic has to do with a pronouncement or an announcement in this area of law. So when we talk about justification being forensic, it means the final analysis, the final verdict. And God justifies us when He pronounces that in His sight we are considered deemed or regarded as just. It's pronouncement of God. It's what God pronounces about us. So forensic justification involves a declaration by God, something that He pronounces, that a person is just in His sight. So it's a legal declaration whereby God pronounces a person as justified. So God judges us, declares us, reckons us, and counts us as just. Now why does He do that? Why would He count us as just when we, as the Scripture says, are sinners? Martin Luther says, those who are justified are at the same time just and sinners. Now that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But it's not contradictory. He doesn't mean that we are just and sinners at the same time in the same relationship. See, the sense in which we are just is different from the sense in which we are sinners. Listen to what Martin Luther says. The glory of the gospel is that God pronounces people just while they are still sinners. Declaring a person to be righteous in his sight before his law. When under analysis, they are still sinners. So see, the judgment of declaring someone just, who in and of themselves is not just, is the very thing that created the controversy in the 16th century. And it led some of the critics of the reformers to say that this was legal fiction because they believed that to say such made God guilty of lying and saying that somebody is righteous when in fact they are not righteous. And that was the argument that was going on between Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and these other reformers with the ones who were not reformers. But the biblical concept of justification rests upon what God does, see? God reconciling. God reckoning. God accounting people to be something in and of themselves that they aren't. See, when we are converted, Scripture says we become new creatures. Now, does that mean that we never sin again? Well, you know that doesn't mean that because you know that you continue to sin. But yet you are in a new position because you are now in Christ. 
And if you're in Christ, you know that you are clothed in His righteousness. So when God looks upon you, He doesn't see the one who continues to sin. He sees what? He sees the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, as He sees the righteousness of Christ, He declares you righteous. Is it your righteousness? No, it's Christ's righteousness that He's given to you. And as the catechism says, the children's catechism, He not only looks upon you as righteous, but He looks upon you as though you've never sinned. A wonderful truth. Now why does He look upon you as though you've never sinned? Because Christ never sinned, right? And He's given you His righteousness. If that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't move you, then something's wrong spiritually. When you think about what God has forgiven you of, all of your sin, and in place of all of your sin, He's given you a righteousness, not your own, but the righteousness of Christ, so that you are accepted into His sight. We see this in the life of Abram. Abram was in a, uh, um, a pagan family. And God called Abram out of that pagan family there in Genesis chapter 15. And God made this promise there in verse 6. Abram believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, why did he believe God? Remember, well, go, let's go to the New Testament there in Ephesians chapter 2. He believed, why? Because God gave him the gift, the gift of faith and grace to be able to believe. And, and when he believed, it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, finally, what is the reason for God counting us for righteousness? Well, Paul gives us the concept that God accounts, reckons someone who puts their trust in Christ as being just, when they put their trust. Now, why does a person put their trust in Christ? Because He's put grace in their heart. He's implanted grace, and when they, He implants grace, they naturally repent and believe. And when they repent and believe, then they are looked upon as just. But it's not their faith, it's not their faith that atones for their sin. Or because their faith is some supreme form of righteousness. No, the reason God counts everyone righteous is because of the work of Christ on their behalf. His righteousness, not our righteousness. So let me conclude with that emphasis. Next week we'll continue and we'll spend a little bit more time on that phrase, by faith alone. But the fundamental issue is this. Based on whose righteousness does God declare us righteous? Christ's righteousness. Teaching us that the only ground by which God will ever view you and me as being righteous, the only ground, will be the righteousness 
of Christ. And that righteousness of Christ comes when we are born again, adopted into the family of God and looked upon as a child of God because of our elder brother Christ Himself who has given us His righteousness. Have you experienced this justification? Have you experienced this new birth to where you have a new desire Have you experienced this new birth to where you have a yearning to worship God and live for God and honor God because you understand this amazing grace that has saved such a worm as you and me? Let us pray. Father, we stand in awe of these verses that we have read and who You are and what You have done on our behalf to save us by Your grace. Father, I pray that we who are Christians never get over this amazing grace. That as we look at these passages such as this, that we want to even know more. That we want to spend more time thinking on grace, thinking upon how you have justified us, thinking upon the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us, and have a desire for others to know of this grace, for others to know of this righteousness, for others to experience this righteousness in their own life. And how we pray, Father, that we would be Your witnesses, just as Your apostles, Father, were transformed by grace and how it burned within them to go forth and tell the world of this gospel of grace. May it burn within us to the same extent that we want to go from here and tell others of this amazing grace that can save the worst of sinners. Cause us, Father, to be faithful to this task. And it's in